Um, the Apostle Paul was being transported to Rome where he would testify before Emperor Nero. Remember, he had been jailed in Jerusalem for preaching the gospel. The Jews captured him and tried to put him to death, but you know the Roman centurion there, or the Roman tribune actually, intervened and saved his life. And so ever since that point, he's kind of been in and out of court, definitely in jail. And so now he's being transported to Rome where he will appeal to the Caesar, to Emperor Nero. The trade ship he was on experienced, experienced a tremendous amount of tribulation while it was at sea. Um, a northeastern storm smashed into this boat, just flew across this portion of the Mediterranean where they were, and just, uh, it just made life extremely difficult for them. They thought they were going to drown. They thought they were going to die. They had literally, you know, like this day, they threw these things overboard to try to lighten the ship, and then the next day, they threw these things overboard, and, you know, it was a trade ship, and they'd thrown all the trade off the boat, right? So there goes a massive financial loss. But in any case, they thought they were going to die. The storm was basically almost capsizing the ship, and so they were throwing everything over. And the last thing that they threw over was hope. Any hope of survival, any hope of deliverance, any hope of rescue, any hope of land. You know, it was dark uh, because of the storm clouds. You couldn't see the sun. You couldn't see uh, the stars at night, and so there was no way to navigate uh, they were just literally hopeless. They just were lost at sea. And the Mediterranean, when we look at a map, it looks kind of like Lake Tahoe. It doesn't look very big, but it's actually very big. It's very large. In fact, from uh, Caesarea to Rome is about 1,000 miles. So that's about 1,000 miles of open sea. So it's, it's basically an ocean. It's like an ocean. And so they were out in the middle of this thing. And uh, just treacherous, treacherous seas. At one point probably at the pinnacle of desperation and hopelessness because God has an incredible way of waiting until we're literally at the end of our rope, right? I don't really care for that. Uh, I'd rather, you know, have something happen before I get there, like as soon as it starts happening. Okay, we're good. Go ahead and take care of it. But he has a way of, of bringing people to the absolute bottom. Uh, as Tony Evans often says, you know, Somebody came to him for counseling and said, man, I feel like I'm at the end of my rope. And he said, good, because God's office is at the end of your rope. So that's a good point, right? It's like God has this way of delivering and rescuing, but allowing people to get to the, their wit's end, to the end of themselves. And so that's sort of what happens here. And there's this moment where Paul is downstairs sleeping during the storm. Some of us can handle that kind of stuff really well, you know, uh, everyone else was upstairs. I think 275 people were exploding and freaking out. The one was downstairs. And, um, and he has this vision uh, while he's asleep. And an angel comes to him and assures him that they're gonna, he's going to make it to Rome to preach the gospel before Caesar and that no one is going to be lost on the ship. So he gets this promise and he, he, goes abo you know, he goes upstairs and he proclaims this promise. And everyone begins to sort of chill out. He tells them that, look, no one's going to be lost, and the ship is going to run aground on some small island somewhere. Not much detail there, right? At that point, I'd be like, exactly what kind of island is it? You know, right? You know, it's just not good enough to know that you're going to be okay. You want all the details and all of that? So Paul just gives them this sort of obscured message of, you're going to be fine. We're going to run aground on an island, 
And that's pretty much where we left off in the text two weeks ago. So let me uh, pray one more time, and then we'll, we'll begin to take another look at Paul's incredible journey to Rome, okay? Father, God, open our hearts and minds to the truth. Show us how you are, and uh, speak to us about your promises and how you deliver on those promises. Um, you make good on whatever, whatever it is that you've decreed, Lord, that you, you definitely, it will come to pass. You make those things come to pass, and so I, I pray that we would see that so clearly today. And that we would be built up in, in the faith. And uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pick it up at 27. 27. It's a pretty simple narrative, by the way. It's, again, just a movement narrative, like we went from here to here kind of thing. But I'm finding that when you slow down and read these things carefully, you find just fantastic truths, not just movement things and stuff. So... When the 14th night, had, 14th night had come, that right there, I was like, okay, this would have really stunk. 14 nights. When the 14th, 14th night had come, uh, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. Um, the 14th night, that's the 14th night, not since they left Caesarea. That was months before. This was the 14th night after they left Fairhaven, that harbor, um, where they wintered, if you will, although they were not completely past winter. Um, this was 14 nights from the moment they basically left their last port. So 14 nights straight of this crazy, at-sea, storm, nightmare, terror. That's what this is. 14 nights of just sheer, that's why he puts it there. Just sheer terror, wave after wave, wind gust after wind gust, dark night after dark night, no you know, stars, no sunshine during the day. I mean, just being lost at sea is basically what he's saying. Fourteenth night, two weeks, battling devastating winds and waves with no ability to navigate because of the cloud cover. <sighs> It makes sense that they had given up all hope. You know, after the first night, you'd be thinking, I think we can get out of this. The second night, I, I think there's still a shot, you know, and we'll just keep doing what we got to do. About a week goes by, you're saying, oh, this isn't looking good. There's no land in the distance. There's, you know, you, you can't navigate. Where are we at, Fred? I have no idea, you know. You get to the two-week point, and that's where you throw hope overboard. We're done. We are not going to be, nobody's going to find us out here. And if they could, they couldn't get near us because of these waves and this storm. Fourteen nights out there, just, just sheer terror. I'll tell you, that'll bring someone to the end of the rope, won't it? Fourteen nights of that. The Adriatic Sea here is not to be confused with the modern-day Adriatic Sea, by the way, uh, located between Italy and Croatia. Uh, in Paul's day, that body of water was called the Gulf of Adria. The Adriatic Sea in verse 27 refers to the central portion of the Mediterranean Sea. So this is not like in that nice little gulf up there where you might feel a little safer. And you know They're out in the middle of the ocean. They're out in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. No land in sight, no stars, no nothing. 14 days of sheer terror. At about midnight, the sailors suspected they were nearing land. How? How did they suspect they were nearing land? How do you suspect 
you're nearing land. I'll tell you how. You hear waves crashing against something. That's how. I mean, how else would you? You'd have to hear something in the distance. You know, when you go to the ocean, you hear that. And that's, that's, I'd like to take a decibel reading when I go down to like Carmel or something. I bet you it's a lot louder than you would think. It's probably like 100 dB, those waves coming in. So I think what happened was, because they couldn't see anything, they couldn't navigate, I think they heard in the distance surf pounding against a shore or a reef or rocks or something like that. It had to have been. I don't know how else they would have, you know, what, did they have Cleo on board with them? Call me now. I think we're, you know, like some seancer out there. No, they didn't have anything like that going on. They had to have heard something. They heard something in the distance, and they thought, okay, there's land out there. Now look at 28. <coughs> so they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms a little further on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. Took a sounding. What, what does that mean? I thought, you know, maybe somebody stuck their head in the water and tried to listen, right? That's not at all what it means. I just had no idea what took it. Is there any sailors in here? Anyone ever been in the Navy? It, well, there's a pirate, obviously, but that's a little different. We have a pirate here, Jack Sparrow. Um, when sailors could not see what was in front of them, but they suspected that they were approaching land, an island, or what have you, they would take a weight and tie it to a very, very long rope, and they would drop it into the water. And if it hit the bottom, obviously the rope would go like that, and it would start to drag. And that's what it means to take a sounding. You take a rock, and I don't know why it's a sounding, more like a vibration. It's like fishing, but they would take that thing and tie it to it and drop it down, and what they would do, as they were lowering the rope, if it bottomed out and hit and snagged, they would mark the rope at the water's surface. And then they would bring the rope up and they would measure in fathoms, that's six feet, they would measure in fathoms the distance of the line they made to the stone or to the weight. And that would tell them how deep the water was where they were. And so these guys did that exact thing. And they found that they were at what did it say, 20 fathoms? That's 120 feet. So they're at 120 foot depth. Now, you got to know land is close by because the Mediterranean is very, very deep in certain places. And so if, if you're at 120 feet, you know, you're, you're probably coming close to land or there could be a sandbar. Remember, the Mediterranean is riddled with those things. There's those areas out there that have sandbars and reefs and stuff. So in any case, they, they did this and they, they found that something's going on down there. And, and they did what the next step you would do would be to take another sounding after a minute or so. And, and you drop the thing again and you do the same thing. And the second time they did that, they found that they were at, what, 15 fathoms. So obviously, you know, land is coming pretty quickly to the surface, if you will. And that's how they determined that something was out in front of them and that, you know, the water was getting more shallow and shallow and they were approaching land. Pretty interesting how they did that stuff. So they're at about 90 feet at this point, right? That's a 30-foot difference in probably 30 seconds. You don't wait too long because land can creep up on you pretty quick. And all of a sudden you run aground and, and maybe that's not the way you want to do it. And so they took this thing really quick. So they found that they had, it, it, you know, the surface, 
it, the surface of the ocean floor had risen 30 feet just in a few seconds, which told them what? Not only are we approaching land, but we are approaching land very quickly at breakneck speed. 30-foot difference that quick. So you had to do something very quickly. I don't think that hitting a strange shore in the middle of the night, because remember the text says it was midnight, okay? Midnight's like my prime time. Any night owls here? I I don't know why. I just can't go to sleep very early, although last night I tried to get to bed at midnight. But it's midnight, so it's pitch dark. The weather's horrible. There's waves. There's wind. There's rain. There's all that. The idea of hitting a strange shore in the dark in a violent storm was not actually what the sailors had in mind. That's not what they wanted to do. They knew that Paul had made some sort of a promise that they would run aground on some small island somewhere. I don't know if these guys believed that by faith or not, but for the most part, it's pitch dark. You, you really don't want to slam into something. You really would prefer to wait until you can see where you can direct the boat, right? Makes total sense. <clears throat> and it says, because they noticed the difference in the ocean floor coming very rapidly... Look at 29, and fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. Prayed for day to come. That's an interesting little thing there, huh? I mean, does that mean that they literally sat around and kumbaya and prayed that daylight would come? No, it's like one of those figures of speech. I remember praying for daylight to come many times when I drank too much back in my party days, Right? Maybe the dizziness would, would subside. Maybe, you know, it's kind of like that statement where like, man, we did that and then we just prayed that it would just get over with. It's like a figure of speech thing. I don't know if they literally stopped and prayed. How do you sit around in a circle and pray when you know, the bow's up here, the stern's up here, the bow, right? So I don't know if we're to take that like literally. I think it's a figure of speech like, man, we just prayed that it would end. Kind of like that. We say that all the time. Did you ever actually really pray that that would end? No. But I thought it, fearing that they might run on the rocks. This was an emergency measure that they, that they took here. Knowing that land was coming very quickly, scared out of their wits, the sailors did not want to grant, run, a, run aground in the dark. I mean, how would you even, if you hit something out several hundred yards offshore, how would you know where the actual shore was? How would you know where to swim to? How would you, I mean, right? And so what did they do? They let down four anchors from the stern. What's the stern? It's the back end. And so basically they put an anchor at each corner and then two in the middle. Anything they could to stop this puppy from moving forward. They knew they were headed in that direction. They knew they were going to slam into something. They knew the ocean floor was coming quickly. We only have probably 45, 50, 60 seconds, maybe a minute to stop this thing before we slam into something and probably all die, although, again, God had made a promise. And so they let down these four anchors, and the boat, you know, came to a screeching halt. Craziness. They had to do something very dramatic. And we read a couple of weeks ago how they had taken some other precautionary measures, and this was really kind of like the last one. All right, we're headed for the beach. We better do something because we're moving too quick and we can't see where we're going. Drop all the anchors in the back end. Crazy. And I think the boat would have, at that point, come to a stop, but it certainly wouldn't have been sitting there where you could throw out a line and catch a trout. 
it would have been like a violent bobber, you know, because the storm was still happening. And so that would have just been, you kids probably would have enjoyed that. It would have been like a free ride from Great America. I would have been throwing up everywhere. So it would have been horrible. And then they prayed for daybreak. Did they literally pray? Maybe. I don't know. If anyone was praying on board, it would have been Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus. The other guys didn't believe in God. So. But I think it's more of a figure of speech. Look at 30 to 32. And as the sailors were seeking to escape, what in the heck? What, what, what are we talking about here? Yeah, look at this little twist, okay? They stopped the boat, and then it says in 30, and as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat, that's the lifeboat, into the sea under, uh, under the, into the sea under pre, the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat, the lifeboat, and let it go. What an interesting little thing that happens here. Oh, my goodness. After letting down the stern anchors, the actual sailors, the guys who were responsible for basically running the boat and steering the boat and managing the boat and doing all these things, these guys, the, the, the ship's crew, they came up with an escape plan with a deception, too. They wanted to get off the boat, man. They were like, hey, I don't want to stay on this thing. We're going to die on this thing. And so they came up with a plan, and then they began to lie about it. They said they were going to use the lifeboat to maneuver to the bow to hang some additional anchors, right? Remember, the bow is pointed. It's not the optimum place for an anchor. And so uh, if you were going to put an anchor at the front of the boat, uh, I guess you would have to use a lifeboat to do it. That's what it appears. And maybe that would help to stabilize the boat additionally or something like that. So they basically told everyone, uh, we're, we're, we're the brave guys here. We're going to jump in the, in the lifeboat. We're going to take it up to the front, of the, you know, the front of the ship, and we're going to hang some additional anchors to get some counterweight on the front of this puppy so we're okay. But they were actually planning to abandon the ship. Uh, they, they were going to get in the lifeboat, and they were not going to go hang anchors. They were going to leave everyone else behind. And, and when I read that, I thought of that Italian captain uh, just not too long ago, he was on that cruise ship, the Costa Concordia. You remember that? You hear about that story off the coast of Italy where apparently this guy took his cruise ship and to show off to some people, took it into an area that he shouldn't have and ran it aground and then it, it you know, beached basically. And he was one of the first guys off the boat. I thought the captain was supposed to go down with the ship. Yeah, he is. That's a rule of thumb. He's supposed to be the last guy to get off the boat. It kind of reminds me of that here where the, the guys that are actually running the ship want to be the first ones off, want to have the first chance to live. And, of course, that guy did that just a couple of years ago. and He got off safely, but 32 of his passengers, passengers drowned. Pretty sad. But Paul was aware of their scheme. <laughs> How? What was he doing? I mean, he's got to be the biggest busybody in history. Just walking around, listening to what... Uh-huh, yeah. Just writing things. He's like TiVo. He just records stuff. He's walking around. I don't know how this went down. How does he know what they're planning to do? Somehow he's watching. Nobody else is paying attention to these guys, maybe. They come up with this plan and all that. He reads right through it. He knows that they're up to no good. Or at least that they're putting everyone else in harm harm's way, and he 
goes to Julius, the centurion, and his soldiers and told them that if the sailors left the ship, if they left the ship, they would be lost. As in the centurion and the soldiers would be lost. Look at the text. He's not talking about, hey, if they leave the ship, they'll probably die on the lifeboat. He's saying, if they leave the ship, you die. What, what a motivator. Paul was an incredible motivational speaker. Tony Robbins has got nothing on this guy. He, he literally says, unless these men stay in the ship. Okay, this is, this is my little, a little paraphrase of it. But it's like, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. You cannot be saved. Not They'll die out there. You cannot be saved. It would appear that God's promise to preserve the other lives on board, right? All the passengers and the crew and all that. It had a clause that we didn't read in the past text. In the last section. There was a clause there. If the passengers and crew wanted to survive with Paul, they had to remain on the ship near Paul. That was the clause. No one can take it upon themselves to leave this ship to try to save their life because everyone will be lost. And I'm thinking Paul in his mind was saying, except for me, because I have to go to Rome. You guys don't really have to go to Rome. You think you have to go to Rome. But I have to go do something in Rome that's very important. You're going to go back there and eat grapes and drink wine and act like a Roman. This is the clause. If they leave, you die. There's the clause. Amazing. If anyone had rejected God's instructions given by the angel to Paul and left the ship, not only would they be doomed for leaving the ship, but so would everyone else, and I think with the exception of Paul. So Paul basically went over to the centurion and to the soldiers and said, if they use the lifeboat to leave the ship, you're going to die. How did they respond to Paul's admonition, to Paul's warning? 32, they, soldiers, cut the ropes <laughs> to the ship's boat and let it go, right? Oh, really? They went over and cut the lifeboat. The lifeboat fell in. You know, obviously it had been banging against the side of the boat. They cut the thing loose. It fell into the water and went, there it goes. And those sailors must have been just like, oh, there it goes. There goes our only hope. Amazing. Oh, it's crazy. They cut it away and it went away. And they, they just removed the liability is what these, the Roman soldiers did. They removed the liability. It's really amazing that they obeyed. Isn't it, though? Because they're not believers. But somehow they believed Paul enough, at least the centurion did, to heed the warnings. It's pretty amazing. 33 and 34, as day was about to dawn, prayed for daylight. Here it comes. Boy, I tell you, prayer is powerful, isn't it? Daylight just showed up. It actually does automatically every day. I don't know if you knew that or not. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take some food, saying, this is crazy, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense, <laughs> that's a nice way to put, in sheer terror and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. That is amazing, but if you're bald, it doesn't apply to you. 
right? Hey, what about me, man? I'm bald. You're cool. You won't lose an ear. You know, I don't know. I don't know what the, content, the thing was there. Nothing. You're not going to die, he says. At dawn, Paul realized that after 14 days of terror, no one on board had eaten anything. They hadn't eaten. People hadn't eaten. I don't know about you. I can barely skip a meal. 14 days? That'd be pretty tough. But then again, when you're in the midst of your terror the whole time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week for two weeks straight, I don't think that food would have been one of the things on your mind. I need to stop and eat. I don't think you would have been able to hold down your food. And so he realized that they needed strength, they needed energy, and he began to urge them to take a little bit of food. He knew that they would need to take that protein, whatever it is that they ate, convert it into energy. Why? So that they could swim ashore if they had to swim ashore. So that they could survive on the island. Right? You need to have a full stomach if you're going to be able to... Well, you know, you have to wait 20 minutes after you eat before you swim. That's a wives' tale. But you need to have the energy. You need to to convert protein into energy so you can have the energy to swim. I mean, you may have to battle for your life here to swim ashore. You don't know what you're dealing with. And Paul's like, well, I know that we're going to run aground on some strange island, some small island. That was the prophecy that he was given. And he reckons that, man, these people haven't eaten. They don't have strength. They're still miserable. We, we need to do something. We need to eat. And, and, he, and he tries to get them. It's like they're hesitant. They're not going to eat just because Paul says, hey, it's been 14 days. You need to eat. You need strength. He begins to reassure them of God's promise, right? Here's an extension or uh, a deeper exposition, if you will, or explanation of that. It was like no one's going to die was the first way that the promise was described, but here he describes it as not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And so he gives a little deeper, look, look, not only are you not going to die, you're going to keep your weave, (laughs) ma'am. Yeah, right? Nobody knows what a weave is in this room, (laughs) apparently. Not only are you not going to die, but you're not going to lose a hair on your head. And so what's he trying to do here? What he's trying to do is he's trying to assure them that they're going to be okay so they can take a break and eat. They need to eat because the critical moment is coming where they may have to swim. They need the strength. And I think this, when he said, look, let me just reiterate what God has said through the angel. You know, you're not going to, none of you are going to lose a hair on your head. I know this helped to calm their nerves to a degree, to put them at ease, but they were still a little hesitant. So Paul sought to encourage them to eat through his own example. Look at verses 35 to 38. I almost feel like this is like you begging a small child in a high chair to eat with the parent doing everything they can to do it. Finally, the parent just takes the bullet and takes the liquefied green bean in their own mouth and says, mmm, yummy. It's like Paul's like trying to nurture them into eating. Like, I'm not going to eat. I'm not going to eat. I, I can't eat. I can't think about food right now. So he's like, look, you're going to need the strength. Look, God's promised that you're not going to lose any hairs on your head. And now he has to literally show them by example. It's almost like a mother or father nurturing a child, trying to get them to eat the stuff that's on their plate. That baby Gerber slop. He shows them by example. Look what it says in 35 through 38. And when he had said these things, he took bread. He took bread. And giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Look, I'm eating the bread. 
You can surely eat the bread. And look what it says in 36. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. And look at the parentheses, 37. We were in all 276 people on this ship. That is a lot of people. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. So verse 34 shows us four things Paul did by example. He took bread, right? Okay, they're not listening to me. They're not doing what I'm asking them to do. And it's critical that they do it. I will show them by example what they must do, right? You've done this with your children. We've done this with people. He takes bread himself. Second thing he does, he gave thanks to God in the presence of all. He blessed the food, if you will. He, he said grace, if you will. He took the bread in his hand and then he prayed, Father, thank you for this bread. And then in three, it says he broke it. He broke the bread. He broke it up. He's going to eat it now. He's not going to try to stick a whole loaf in his face. He's going to break it up into pieces and eat it. And then fourth, he began to eat. He began to eat it. What are these four examples here or things that we see in the text remind us of? They remind us of the Eucharist. They remind us of communion, don't they? But Paul was not attempting to do communion with a bunch of Romans here. What he was doing here actually also reminds us of what we as Christians do before meals, right? We prepare food and we say grace and we distribute the food and we eat. We've been doing that since the Lord's Supper. Jews have been doing that since the Passover. What is Paul doing? Paul is showing them his custom. He's also displaying his piety, his calmness, his faithfulness, and his piety. He actually takes a moment to do a structured meal according to his own religious convictions, which is interesting, right? Why not just take the food and just start jamming it down? He's like, look, everyone, do this. No, Paul wants to honor the Lord here, and he wants to display a calmness and a piety, a faithfulness to God is what he wants to show. And I think it's really interesting that he does this and the thanks and all that. It's tied into a meal, but it also comes after the promise that was made by God because our thanks is always a response to what God has provided. Isn't it? You see, you don't come to God before he's done something for you and thank him. You, you can't know him until he's regenerated you and saved you. It's like God performs a saving work in our lives first and then we respond with obedience. Here we see God say, I'm going to deliver you. Here's a promise I give to you. And here we see Paul, in a way, with a meal, displaying his thanks and gratitude to God for God's provision. And I think the prayer probably included, thank you for the promise. Thank you for the deliverance that you're going to bring. Thank you for this food. See, what Paul's doing is he's responding to the promise of God. Paul's response comes afterwards. And it looks like the Eucharist, it looks like communion in a way, but I know that he wasn't trying to do communion with people who do not believe. He was displaying his custom, and it had a powerful effect. It did. It had a powerful effect. All 276 people began to eat. And they didn't eat like a bunch of little birds. Like girls, you know, back in the early days when I dated, you'd take them out. I'll just have a salad. Huh? I'm having a T-bone. You want a bite? Yes. And then the T-bone's gone, right? You're like, I knew you were a carnivore. I remember those days. I'm not that old. 
these people didn't eat like birds. What does it say in the text? It says, when they had eaten what? Enough. Isn't that interesting? I didn't just grab one slice of pizza. They ate, the, they ate, they ate, and they ate. They ate till they had their fill. Paul's example was a powerful example. His exhortation was a powerful exhortation. They all ate. They ate a meal. Everyone until they were full. I love that. Until they had had enough. After the meal, the crew took one last emergency measure. They wanted to make the ship as light as possible, so they threw all the food overboard. I can see the Pop-Tarts floating away. No! Right? Dang it! My Slim Jims! You know? They threw the wheat overboard. That was what? The food! That's how you make bread. I would have said, uh, uh, don't you guys think we ought to hang on to a little bit of that? We have no idea what's on this island. Oh, they threw all the wheat overboard. Basically their food. Why? To lighten the ship. Why? So that it would be easier to steer. They wanted to lighten it as much as possible. They heard the waves crashing and all this stuff. You know, it was daybreak. They probably started to see some imagery out there, rocks and and stuff like that. And they thought, well, we need to lighten the ship as much as possible because we're going to have to do some steering. And so they just threw all the weed overboard. That would have been like, Aiken stole a bag and stuck it somewhere, then suffered the consequence later. He threw all the food over. <clears throat> Ship would have been faster, too. Lighter, faster. Less weight means less drag, and that equals more speed, more maneuverability. And I think they needed it. They knew what was out there now, or to, to a degree at least. Look at 39 and 40. Now, when it was day, okay, so now the sun has come up. Their prayers were answered. They did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea. And at the same time, loosening the ropes, they untied the rudders because you did not want them to move because you didn't want the boat going in circles or any of that. So they untied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. All right, so here's what happened. Here's what's played out. They've thrown everything overboard. There's nothing left but people to throw overboard. The daylight comes. They're ready to make a move. They see a beach, and they want to point the ship towards that. Little details that are included here in in 40. They cast off the anchors and left them in the sea. Okay, they figured we're probably not ever going to use these anchors again because we're done sailing for a while. So they cut them loose and let them into the sea. Two, they loosened the ropes that tied the rudders. I already covered that. They, they let the steering loose so they could actually steer the boat. They hoisted the foresail to the wind. Obviously, they had dropped all the sails because they didn't want to get torn to pieces. The wind would keep grabbing the sails and cause trouble for them, so they hoisted the foresail. This was the forward sail. And then it says they made for the beach. That's the fourth detail. At this point, there might have been some sense of relief on board amongst the crew and passengers, right? We've done everything we can. We now have a target. They're aiming for the target. They can see it. It's clear. They're shooting for it. So I think that they may have felt like they were in the home stretch. Safety from the sea and storm was just a couple hundred yards away. Sighs of relief filled the air. But there was danger below the surface. 
There was an invisible obstacle that they could not see. Look at verse 41. Mine says, but striking a reef. I think the version Harry read from was a sandbar. Maybe a sandbar and a reef are kind of the same thing in the text, but when I think of a reef, I think of a lot of coral, and I think of something that would absolutely shred the bottom of a boat. When I think of a sandbar, I think of something you'd go, we can't move. So mine is better. It says reef. What's your say, Paul? Yes. What translation were you reading from? It doesn't have reef. Oh, well, we'll you know, we'll accept what you've said. So they struck a reef. They ran the vessel aground, it says in 41. The bow stuck and remained immovable. I can't really see it remaining removable in sand, Harry. Um, they struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. Wow. So what happened here? The wind caught the foresail, began to propel the ship forward. They were aiming for that target. The sailors took a hold of that rudder, man, and they began to steer it with all their might, steer it towards that target. They were cooking, man. They were moving, right? Because remember, we still had high winds and all of that. And boom, they struck a reef. And the impact here must have been tremendous. Probably people went flying, literally. Why? Because the bow of the ship became fused with the reef. It didn't just touch it and stop the boat. It literally rammed into the reef, broke through parts of it, where the reef actually became like welded, if you will, with the bow of the ship. And so it's like it hits the reef and the reef goes like this. I mean, this was a devastating, devastating impact. It became, the boat, the bow at least, became immovable. So, which means that they were trying to maybe shift the sail and steer the boat backwards to get out of this predicament. But the measures that they tried did not work. The boat was just fused with the reef. And worse than that, the tumultuous sea began to crash against the back of the boat, the stern, and devour it like Pac-Man, like a giant chipper shredder. The back of the boat is exploding. It's coming apart. You know, you can actually, it would have probably looked like maybe in the old westerns where there's a dynamite and a fuse going off and you see the fuse going. The back of the boat is being chopped up like this. It's just being shredded. It's being torn to pieces. These people have seconds to react. This was the time to abandon ship. Look at verse 42. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners lest any should swim away and escape. They, they very quickly, the soldiers very quickly devised a plan to execute all the prisoners, including Paul. Why? They feared that they would swim and escape. And this seems like a harsh measure. Like, how can you guys think of doing something like that at this time? If you were in their shoes, you'd understand why. According to Roman law, if a prisoner escaped, his guard or guards would receive his sentence and penalty. Let me illustrate this. John Strand, our prison guard back there. And I tell you, if I ever go to prison, John, I want you to be my guard. Because you are the nicest, kindest, gentlest guy I've ever met. You're probably a savage in prison. Stand up, boy! You know, you're probably, your demeanor probably changes. Is it true, or are you the same guy? It's classified information. Dang it! 
Well, I tell you what, I'm going to go get in trouble. I'll see you in about two weeks. We'll find out. In fact, there's people in here that could already go be with you. I won't call them by name. I'm just kidding. There's nobody in here that, well, maybe, I don't know. Did you get your taxes in, right? You know? Just let me illustrate this. If John Strand, our prison guard guy here, great guy, if he worked on death row and one of his inmates escaped during his watch, John would receive his punishment and sentence. That's Roman law in this day. So this rule that was in place caused soldiers and guards to serve with great focus and diligence. <laughs> Wouldn't it? You know if they get away, you'll die. They won't get away, trust me. The soldiers here, they understood that liability. And as the ship is breaking apart and, and people are about to jump overboard, they're thinking, what a perfect opportunity for our prisoners to escape, which means we'll all die. So let's just kill them all and re remove the liability. That's, how, that's the soldier's rationale here. They could remove the liability by executing the inmates. But before they could act out their plan, because it was a genuine plan, they were going to do it. I don't know how. Were they going to go around and stab them? What were they going to do? Something happened. Look at 43A. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. Julius the centurion learned of their plan. He must have heard them talking. Maybe they included him in it. And he was like, I ain't doing that. He intervened. He wanted to save Paul, it says, right? Wishing to save Paul. That's interesting. Did he like Paul? No. Did he respect Paul? I doubt it. This guy's a Roman. Romans hated Jews. I don't think it had anything to do with, he's such a nice guy. I think it was because he believed that Paul was key to his survival at this point, right? Paul was the one who received an oracle or promise from God. Paul was the one who delivered that promise to the crew and passengers. Paul was the one who demonstrated steadfast faith and confidence in God. Paul was the one who stepped up and led by example during most of this trip. Paul was the one who ensured the safety of all as long as they stuck together, right? Isn't that what this, the, this entire chapter is talked about? Absolutely. So what? Killing Paul would violate the conditions of the promise which would put everyone in jeopardy, especially Julius. Julius understood, you kill him, we all die. In fact, if you kill anyone, we all die. D didn't you hear the conditions of the promise that no one can basically, we have to stick together. This was Julius' understanding of this promise. Now, don't just see he believed and he was a Christian now and all that. Don't go there. Paul had set an example for him, and he believed Paul to a degree, and he believed that Paul was key and instrumental to their survival. And I think this probably went on as they got onto the island later too. Let's not mess with Paul. You know, his attitude was we... we Either all make it out alive or none of us make it out alive. This was his understanding of God's promise to Paul. It had to be because I don't think there was some love or I really like this guy. He's really nice. Julius was highly motivated at this point to preserve the lives of all people, including the prisoners. Look at our last verses, 43b to 44. 
he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. You know, it's true that even a poor leader will rise to the occasion when his or her own life is at stake. Uh, You have to admit in this entire chapter, chapter 27, that Julius the centurion has modeled cruddy leadership. I mean, they were at sea for a long time and then at a, you know, during a storm, 14 nights of that, and, and we really don't see him doing much of anything in there. But what we do see is Paul taking the lead and leading. So Julius wasn't a very good leader by any means. But here, he really stepped up, didn't he? Why? Because he liked Paul? No. Because his own life was at stake. It's amazing how people will do this. It's amazing how people will... They're really not good employees at their jobs, but then they find out that their layoffs are coming and all of a sudden they become superstar employee. Your numbers are really great, Bob. They were terrible for 14 years, but all of a sudden they've exploded. Maybe we should hand out more pink slips. Well, this guy was motivated. I mean, he, he, he For the first time during this voyage, we see Julius really take the lead and direct the people and give them instructions, right? Paraphrased, if you're able to swim, jump overboard and swim to shore. If you can't swim very good, grab a piece of the boat and kick paddle to shore. That's what he told everyone. I think they had seconds to respond. And of course, it says all were brought safely to land. Now that's the key. All. 276 people. Two weeks of terror at sea had come to an end. They were all safe. What is the theme of this passage? What can we take away from chapter 27, the whole chapter? How about God fulfills His promises? How about God makes, has made promises? And how about God makes good on those promises? Isn't that what we've seen in the text? 276 people were on a ship at sea and they experienced a terrible, terrible storm and they thought they were going to drown, but God made a promise that everyone would live and at the end of verse 44, we see God fulfill that promise. You see, this is just one example in the Bible for how God fulfills His promises. Just one little tiny example. The Bible is full of God's promises. You know, it's so full of God's promises that it's not really possible to count them all. People have actually tried to do this. They've actually surveyed all of Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, tried to figure out how many promises are in the Bible. This is amazing. What an interesting thing to do. I think you'd probably spend your entire life doing it, trying to study this. People throughout the years have come up with 3,000 promises, right? Well, there are 3,000 promises in the Bible. Later on, some other guys did it. There are 7,000 promises in the Bible. The English theologian Herbert Lockyer studied the subject and came up with 8,000 promises. There's 8,000 promises in the Bible. And I suspect he barely scratched the surface on them. 
And yes, there's different types of promises. There's covenantal promises. There's all sorts of different types of promises. So take that into consideration. The Bible is literally chock full of God's promises. And, and here's the really, really good news. It's one thing to have a lot of promises, but it's another thing that those promises are fulfilled. The good news is that God fulfills those promises. There are so many promises in Scripture, and God is completely 100% accurate on fulfilling those things in His timing and according to, to His will, His purposes, that there's just so much of it in Scripture. So much that Christians can literally build their lives upon them. Build our lives upon the promises of God. Proverbs 30, verse 5a says, Every word of God proves true. Not some words. Not a few words. Not just the red words. Not just the black words. Every word of God proves true. The whole counsel of God, the whole Bible, all of Scripture proves true. And because of this, God is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. That's the other half of Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5. That's 5b. God is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Why? Because His word proves true. Only His Word, His promises are completely accurate. Only Him. Because they come from a perfect being. Immutable. I think Aaron said that earlier. He never changes. Completely sovereign. Fulfills all of His will and purposes in the earth. Because of who He is, His Word is perfect. Every word of God proves true. And because of that, He alone can be our true shield, our true refuge. Because it's only on Him and upon His Word that you can bank any security or purpose or anything on. Some of us here are so trusting in others and what they say and what they do, and we basically built our lives upon them, our spouses or what have you. And when they let us down, it's crushing. You realize God never intended that for your marriage? Oh, what are you saying, Phil? I'm not supposed to have any expectations for my husband. No, I say you have a lot of them. But he ain't perfect. She's not perfect. Because every word of God is true, proves true, all that he has decreed will come to pass, and things have already come to pass. He's the only one that you can really have absolute certainty and confidence in, in him upon his own word. That's it. You just can't base your life on what others do and say. If you do, you will be absolutely miserable. You will be miserable. I let my wife down at least 10 times a week, and she does me 12 times. You better hear me, woman. No, she doesn't. She's actually pretty reliable. If my life were built upon 
her promises and her ability to fulfill those things perfectly, man, what a tumultuous life I would have. You can't build your life on people's promises or on anything else. You just can't. And we all say, amen, preach it, brother. I believe you 100%. Does your life reflect that reality, though? Because when we look at our lives, we begin to see that our lives don't really reflect that reality because the slightest thing that somebody does completely blows us to pieces. Right? Fact is, we all experience storms in life, don't we? Spiritual storms. Emotional storms, physical storms. There's no way to escape them. Every believer experiences them. The Apostle Paul said, it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. You're not going to get to glory without tribulation. And if you base your life on anything other than God and his promises, you're going to have a really tough time getting there to glory. In fact, if you don't do that, you won't even make it to glory because you're building your life on something other than a faith in people, a faith in this world, a faith in this pathetic government. It is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. When storms come, and some of you are in the midst of a storm right now, the doctor gave you a report, family member called and said, so-and-so passed away, maybe somebody here has lost a job, maybe spouse has betrayed someone here. These are all types of storms. You're in a storm. And if you're not, you will be. There's coming a day where the clouds will begin to form and you'll enter into a dark season of your life. It'll happen. It's guaranteed. Jesus said, in this life you will have trouble. That's as much as a promise as I will never leave you or forsake you you will have trouble. What do we do in the midst of a storm or as a precautionary measure before we enter a storm? We remember God's promises and how He delivers and how His Word is true and how He's trustworthy. Remember that His Word always proves true. And because of this, because his word is true, he is true and completely trustworthy, completely reliable. Just because you're in the middle of a storm right now doesn't mean that he's not going to deliver you from it. You may not think he's going to. At some point he will. Did he not deliver these people? He did that in a very observable, physical way. Some of us will struggle in storms of life all the way until we go to glory, but then that's where we're delivered. You're still delivered. 
He may not deliver us for whatever reason in this life from our adversary or from our foes or from certain struggles or certain health issues. We may have to deal with those things the duration of our life. But there is a day of deliverance coming. To me, that's the worst case scenario. Well, I just have to deal with this until I go be with Jesus and then I don't ever have to worry about it again. I will be fully restored to him. But he does rescue even in this life. In fact, I I don't think that we really ponder that at times, how often he rescues us from situations that we're not even aware of. Things are happening. It's crazy. Remember that his word always proves true. You see that in the text. Apply that to, to, to your life and live a life secured in him and freed in him. Take confidence in God. He's your only confidence. Through Christ, amen.